Thank you, Barbara. She always reminds me I'm supposed to say who I am. I'm Tom Patton, missions pastor here at Oak Mountain, and pleased to celebrate this week with you. Um, I'd like to invite Yotis Kantartzis. Now, I want y'all to be impressed with that. Aren't you? Thank you. Okay, there's one problem. It does not impress him one bit. My Greek is terrible. At least I understood that you're referring to me. <laughs> well, there, there is that. This is a dear brother who I am so excited and honored to introduce to you. Uh, we have visited him and his church in Athens a couple of times. Yotis and his wife, Nopi. Where's Nopi? Okay, Nopi, right here. I want you to get to know her as well. But they, he is the senior pastor of First Evangelical Church in Athens, not Alabama, not Georgia, Greece. And um, <clears throat> he has led a church planting multiplication movement in his city. And it's not just planting churches, but it is ministering the gospel to the homeless, to the poor, to the refugee. They are doing the most beautiful work in their city. And so I'm excited to introduce him to you, but also for you to hear about the work. And as if all of that is not enough, Yotisa said, hey, we need to encourage a church planting movement across the region. And so he's now started a church planting movement among uh, fellow Balkans, the, the uh, countries around Greece to encourage those in those countries to plant churches. So anyway, it's just a tremendous blessing to have you share. He asked me to read the passage of scripture for you this morning, which I think he could read it better in English than I can, but I'm going to invite you to stand <laughs> and we'll give it a shot. From Ephesians chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, for what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow the knee before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Tom. You may be seated. If you've seen in the program, um, uh, we have lived for six years in Boston, uh, where I studied, so I can use my Bostonian accent or my Greek accent. Uh, which one do you prefer? I'll stick with my Greek accent. Uh, well, uh, when uh, Tom um, gave me the topic and the scripture passage, I was really excited uh, because Ephesians 3, it's a, uh, it's a chapter which is um, many times not well connected and uh, studied in connection with missions, but I think there is a very key passage that has to do uh, about missions. And uh, what we are trying to do, actually, uh, I said in the earlier service that um, uh, you have in your bulletin the three points. I'm a good Presbyterian, three points. But uh, actually, there are, these three points are within three other points which you don't have and you need to pay attention because, uh, uh, you know, I changed a little bit uh, uh, since I gave on Friday, was it? Uh, yeah. Uh, this is, that explains things about Greece. Many years ago, I was invited to preach in a church in the UK. And uh, so, uh, you know, we had the date, and uh, so the pastor sent me uh, the scripture passage and the topic, and that was nine months ahead. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to preach nine days after today, not nine months, but this is, that explains why our economy is in such a bad shape. We're not uh, <laughs> doing really well with planning. Uh, well, but uh, here is the thing. We will uh, see three main things about missions and uh, what it means to be engaged in missions. First of all, we'll talk about the call to missions, uh, why we do missions. The second will be how to engage in mission work. Okay? And the third will be what is the motivation? Why should we do that? Okay? The call to missions the way to engage, and the motivation, and all of that, we'll find it in chapter 3. And let's start with the first one. Uh, and in order to uh, deal with that and to analyze that, it's very important to spend a little bit of time trying to understand the notion of mystery. Okay, we have seen in that chapter at least uh, three times this uh, word, this concept being repeated, the mystery, the mystery. And this is a very important concept for Paul. 21 times in his epistle, Paul uses this term. Uh, six times in the book of Ephesians, three times in this chapter. So it's very important to analyze it. 
so in order to do that, it's important to contrast it with uh, the mystery religions. In the time of Paul, there was a plethora of what it was called the mystery religions, pagan uh, idolatrous religions. And in those mystery religions, the concept of mystery uh, had two main features. One, it was all about exclusivity, excluding others, and it was all about experience. Uh, so in order to be part of those mystery religions, you had to be initiated. So that was, there was a lot of secrecy. So it was only for those who belong in the inner ring. It was all about exclusivity. So it's us against them. And also it was all about a personal uh, experience, an individual experience. So it was, uh, uh, it had to do with the subjective uh, experiential uh, 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 aspect. Okay, so that was the mystery in the mystery religions. Now, contrast that with the use of this same word from Paul. When Paul talks about mystery, it's all about inclusiveness, including others, and it's not about experience, but it's about God's action in history through Jesus Christ. Okay, why we say that? If we uh, go to uh, chapter 3, verse 3, we read about the mystery which was made known to me, Paul says, by revelation. And then in verse 4, we read again about the mystery of Christ. And then in verse 6, we read that this mystery is that the Gentiles, now pay close attention, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, uh, we'll do a little bit of Greek lesson today. Uh, and here, in the Greek text, we have three words that they all have a first prefix that is the word sin. You use the word synergy. So sin means together with. So you cannot see it in the translation, but it's in the Greek text, the New Testament Greek text. Okay, so the emphasis there is the together with. It's about including others, okay? So the mystery religion is about excluding. The mystery for Paul is all about including others in. And the content of the mystery is not an experience, a mystical, ethereal experience. It's, it's God's revelation. It's God's action in history through Jesus Christ, or in other words, the gospel. Okay, so if that is the mystery, then we can perhaps understand why we do missions. Because if God's intention is to include others, to include the nations, to include Gentiles, uh, based on his action in history, which is what, it was what? It was through Jesus Christ to create a new community, the church. So the reason we do missions is exactly because of the mystery that has been revealed, okay? So why we do missions? Because God acted in history through Jesus Christ, creating an alternative community, the church. And in this church, everybody is invited. Now, if you read with me verses 8 and 9, we read this. Paul says, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And here, 
um, is the important part, and to bring to, li to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Okay, for everyone, for everyone. So that is why we do missions. Now, the second point is how do we engage in doing missions? Uh, how do we uh, become active in a missional life? And now, before I go on, we'll see three points. These are the three points that you have in your bulletin. But before we go on, I want you to, to realize that what we are going to say uh, applies not only for those who will be in overseas missions, but it applies to everyone, to all of us. How can we live a missional life in our everyday activities? And we'll see three things. How do we engage in missions? The first thing is this. In order to fulfill our mission, first of all, we need to live in the divine now. We need to live in the divine now. Let's go to the first point, please, with the slide. Great. Well, time plays a significant role in this letter for Paul. We read in verse 5, verses 15 to 17, this. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Now, uh, excuse again my Greek lesson here, but in Greek there are, in, in New Testament Greek, there are two different words that describe what we translate time in English. There is the word chronos, or chronos as you say it, uh, and uh, that is the calendar time. You know, like, what time is it? It's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, is you know. So this is the time in the secular sense. But also there is another word, which you mistakenly, you know, there is this whole discussion about what is the proper pronunciation of New Testament Greek. I'm not going to enter into it, but, you know, you have the wrong pronunciation. But uh, the correct pronunciation is this, is keros. You say kairos. Perhaps you have heard this expression. It's keros, okay? Uh, and you come to me and I'll explain why, what are the arguments for that later. We're not going to fight. They're going to have reasonable arguments, all right? Uh, well, but, but here is the thing. When, when this expression is being used, we're not talking about the calendar time, but we're to talking about time which is loaded in significance and with meaning, okay? The appropriate time, the right time, okay? And that is the word that Paul is using here. So he says that it's very important to be wise, to understand the time, okay, the appropriate time. And then he continues and he says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So it's very important for Paul to have discernment and understand what time it is, to understand the time. And that's exactly what he does in chapter 3. Two times in chapter 3, Paul uses this word. He used the word now. He lives in a particular now, in a divine appointed now. He understands that his time is not simply a coincidence, but is, is, is planned by God. And read with me, first of all, verse 5. He talks about the mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has Underline the word, now being revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then, verse 10, so that 
through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So again and again, Paul realizes that he lives in a divine now. And the question is, what is your divine now? Let me tell you a few things about our story, a few illustrations. 2015, summertime, beginning of summertime, we have some American consultants that came to help us figure out Americans. I know Andy, okay, so you excuse me the dialogue here, you know. Americans, many times they come to straighten us up, but uh, so they try to analyze our movement and, you know, what we need to do. And I remember they asked me, uh, okay, what do you think is the next step? And I answered, a step back. Uh, because we're really going very fast with planting churches and expanding and doing too many things, and we're all exhausted and tired. And I said, beginning of two, you know, summer 2015, I said, okay, the, here is my plan, okay, a step back. And then the refugee crisis started. I'm sure that you have watched that on your TVs. Uh, about one million refugees came past by Greece from Turkey, through the islands. Actually, I think tonight you will see part of a documentary called Jesus in Athens, which kind of describes some of the things that took place and they're taking place since. But that was 2015. So at that time, I was at Cambridge, at Tyndale House, uh, doing some research and studying there in the UK. And actually, uh, all that time I was praying that by the time I will return back to Athens, this thing will be over, you know, and it will be done, and it didn't. So I remember uh, with some of our people, we went to that main square where thousands and thousands of refugees would congregate waiting, you know, for the borders to open or for the next step, thousands of people, most of them from Afghanistan back then, you know. So we went in, uh, and we had some stuff to, to distribute some, you know, tooth, toothpaste and uh, shampoos and, you know, milk. And you won't believe what happened. As we entered in and they realized that we have something, they summed at us, you know, they took everything from us. And it, it was, as I was looking what was going on, I felt deep inside that this is a divine now. Okay, now is the time. Now, this is an, an amazing opportunity. And I do believe, of course, everybody believes that his city is, you know, the most important city for the, you know, sake of the kingdom. But we have a documentary to prove that. Uh, you'll see it tonight. Uh, and, uh, and actually, the guy who did it, uh, Darren Carlson, a good friend, he said to me, this is a guy, a very interesting guy. He's a Southern Baptist guy who uh, leads this organization that does training around the world. And uh, he did his PhD dissertation on the uh, network of migrant churches in Athens and trying to document what. And after he did his uh, in the university in, in London, London School of Theology. So after he did his uh, dissertation, he decided to do a documentary highlighting some of the things. Uh, so before, up, you know, he was for six months in Greece doing interviews and visiting and documenting what was going on. At the end of these six months, we had coffee and he said, me, he said to me this, Yoti, you live in the most strategic city for the sake of the kingdom. 
today in the world. And I do believe that. And, you know, uh, I don't know, what is your context? Uh, and, and I'm not talking about necessarily the church context. I mean, your particular context. What are the divine opportunities in the catechism we just confessed about the decrees of God. That's us. I mean, we are reformed people and we believe in the providence of God. And, and I don't know how you analyze the refugee crisis, but I'll tell you my analysis. Uh, as, as I was a student at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary back in the 80s and 90s, I think 90s, my wife keeps track of the time. I'm more with the Keros, not with the Kronos. <laughs> well, uh, uh, back then there was this idea in, in missiology, the 1040 window. Have you re you, do you remember that? There was like that part in the map where uh, countries with the least evangelized people live. So if you think about that map, that, that, that window is being emptied in Europe. In Europe, that only recently, uh, there are several church planting, like the, the thing that we have heard from Birmingham. Okay, this is like the last 10 years, uh, you know, churches are being planted. And is it by coincidence or is it a divine now? Okay? And I don't live in Birmingham. I don't know what are your opportunities. What are the divine nows that you need to figure out as a church, as a community, but also as individuals, as families? What are the challenges, the opportunities that God in his sovereignty, you know, is placing before us to respond? So the first thing is that in order to engage in missions, uh, I just realized there is no clock here. You're not doing well with time. There is one? I, okay, it's over there. All right, yes. Uh, because Presbyterians, you know, they have a pipe organ and a clock. That's it. <laughs> if you come to our church, we have a pipe organ and a clock. That's, uh, that makes you good Presbyterian. Uh, no pipe organ here, I just noticed. <laughs> we do have, we do have one. Uh, uh, and I had to take off clothes uh, to, to fit in here. You know, I had a tie, a jacket, and, you know, anyway. <laughs> well, let's, let's, go to the, let's go to the second point. Let's go to the second point. So the, the question is, how do we engage in missions? We saw the call, okay? God acted in history, and that is the, the you know, the very essence of God's action in history constitutes our calling to missions. That's what we saw when we analyzed the notion of mystery. But now we say, how do we engage practically? So first of all is understand what is the divine now and live into the divine now. The second would be appreciate the privilege, appreciate the privilege. Now, we need to appreciate the beauty and the worth and the preciousness of the gospel in order to really share it with others. Let me explain what I mean by that. Paul starts in verse 1, and he says, For this reason, okay, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, and we expect him to complete his sentence. But he opens a parenthesis. I always tell to uh, people 
that you know more Greek than you, you think you know. So parenthesis, it's a Greek word. Uh, <laughs> well, he opens a parenthesis, which he closes right before verse 14. And in verse 14, if you see, he resumes what he started in verse 1. And he says, for this reason, it's as if he started saying something. For whatever reason, he stopped. He opens the parenthesis, and then in verse 14, he resumes and he continues, and he will see what he does. So the question is, why this parenthesis? What this diversion, this digression? Okay, what happened? What, what, is, what is the reason? It's very interesting. Paul, in verse 1, says something that he feels the need to stop and explain. And what is this? He said, for this reason, and of course, if you read this expression for this reason, what you do? You read the previous chapter, okay, what went before. And it had to do with the inclusion of Gentiles in the church, okay, the evangelization to the Gentiles. So for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And once Paul says that, he feels the need to stop a little bit and explain something. And basically what he wants to explain is this. Okay, I'm a prisoner for Christ's sake and for your sake, but don't feel sorry for me because I don't feel sorry for that. There is a cost. If we want to engage in mission, either in overseas missions or in everyday life mission, there is a cost. And that is what Paul says. You know, I'm a prisoner, so it's not an easy thing. Uh, you know, God has this amazing divine plan, and many times we, we're so excited. Wow, you know, God has a wonderful plan for me. And many times that entails suffering, cost. And I know that that may be a little bit different, difficult for you to realize. And he said that in Birmingham, 3% go to church. In Athens, evangelicals are 0.3% of the population. Okay? Uh, that's a totally different context. What is the cost? And, and I still remember many, many years ago, uh, it's, I don't know, definitely more than 10, 12 years ago, I visited Birmingham many years ago, and I met with Brother Tom Chile. And we went out for lunch. And remember, I come from Greece. I studied for six years in Boston. And we go out for lunch. And you know what impressed me? As we were sitting there in that restaurant, there is a group of young people in the next table who are bowing their heads to pray before they eat. That was the very first time ever in my life seeing that in a public space. You know, something that for you is kind of, you know, an everyday thing. Like you go early in the morning in those places, Panera, Starbucks, and you see people praying and doing Bible studies and all these things. These are, you know, this is a different culture, okay? And, 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 and even, even ourselves who say, okay, we're 0.3% and, you know, being a Christian is a difficult thing, you know, especially if you're going to be, uh, live your faith openly, okay, that it's, there is a cost there and, you know, because you're misunderstood, you're 0.3%. And if you want to see what does that mean, think of a religious group in Birmingham who is 0.3%. 
typically this is a group that you consider weird. Or if your kids started going there, you will be really concerned. So that's who we are, 0.3%, okay? But, but let me tell you this. One of the good things that happened to us with the refugee crisis is this. Many times we felt sorry for ourselves, saying, oh, we're 0.3%, you know, we're persecuted, not persecuted, discriminated, and we have a cause and all this. And then you see all these people, refugees, coming from Muslim background, coming to faith and experience what they have to suffer for, the, for their faith, right? And then that was one of the greatest blessings that happened to us. We stopped complaining, okay? I remember uh, we have an Iranian church in our family of churches, and with the Iranians, it's the most amazing story. Okay, you have a clock, but you didn't tell me what time we're supposed to end. <laughs> what does that mean? Because different culture, you know... <laughs> Okay, all right. I take it to go on, all right? Uh, all right. Uh, we have, we have this, this amazing, this amazing uh, church there, this amazing ministry. And I think this is not only true in Athens, but it's across the world. There is a revival going on with the, with the Iranians. And I was there once preaching, and uh, we, I, the Iranian pastor was translating and I said something about, like, the end of your life, that, you know, your deathbed, uh, you know, uh, whom do you ask? You don't say, you know, bring me my cars to see them for the last time or my degrees. But you say, give me my loved ones, my children, you know. And as I was saying that, there is silence. The guy, the Iranian pastor, does not translate. And... I thought that, okay, perhaps I'm same, same, saying something kind of complicated. I said it in more simple uh, words, and still he's not translating. I look, I turn, and I see him crying. And then I look at the congregation, and half of the people there are crying. Why? Because, because they are Christians. They will never be able to return back to their country, to be by their deathbed of their loved ones because now they're non-Christians. So, uh, there is a cost uh, uh, that goes along with uh, living in the divine now, okay? Fulfilling God's plan. But here's the thing, here's the thing. Paul says that at the end of the day, I don't feel sorry, I feel privileged and that's exactly what he wants to explain. Don't feel sorry for me. There is a cause. But at the end of the day, it's a joy and it's a privilege. It's a blessing to do that. So if you read with me uh, verse 2, Paul describes what he does as uh, God's grace that was given to me. And then in verse 7, very interesting, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift. It's a gift, okay? You are, you, you are in a prison <laughs> for the sake of the gospel. And you say this is a gift, it's a gift, a grace, okay? But that's how Paul feels. And then verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given. So Paul, over and over again, says that yes, there is a cause, but the blessing is such that I cannot complain. I'm privileged. And uh, when I was a student at Gordon Conwell, uh, I was introduced to John Piper. Uh, one of our professors studied under him, and so in the very early days, 
Uh, he was not well known as he is right now. And I was listening to a tape. I always need to explain that. Ask your parents what's a tape. Uh, <laughs> well, I was listening to a tape where John Piper was preaching. And he said this, that will never, it's one of these things that you'll never forget. He said, there is no sacrifice in Christian life. And at first, I reacted. What do you mean? You know, there's no sacrifices. It's all about sacrificing. But if you think about it, there is no sacrifice. Because at the end, that's what Paul teaches us here. The beauty and the blessing is such that at the end, you feel privileged of being allowed to do that. So unless we appreciate the beauty of the gospel, the preciousness of the gospel, it's going to be very difficult to be in missions because we will be afraid of the cost. But if you are so convinced about the beauty of the gospel, you'll have no problem no matter what the cost is. The third point, my favorite one. The third thing that is very important in order to live a missional life is to invite the unexpected to happen. If you come to my office, besides seeing the Parthenon from my window, <laughs> and uh, I always say that if there was ever a competition about the best view out of the pastor's office window, I would win. I see the Parthenon and the Hadrian's, the Hadrian's Arts and the Temple of Zeus and these amazing places. But uh, I have some, other, some books as well <laughs> and uh, as a background. Uh, and, and I have three signs, three slogans. One of them is this. It, we invite the unexpected to happen. And this is kind of a, uh, like a paradox, like a contradiction in terms of how, I mean, if something is unexpected, how can you invite it? But, but there is a way that we invite the unexpected to happen. And let me tell you what that way is. Let's go back to Paul in Ephesians 3. So what is the thing that Paul started doing? He stopped, opened this parenthesis, and then he resumed. We read in verse uh, 14. If you see the scripture, trust me, is there. He's praying. He started praying. And I think that's the most important thing we can learn from Paul. That Paul realizes that in order for his mission to be fulfilled, he needs to rely on God's power. And that's, 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 he illustrates that by praying for, for them. He preached the gospel to them, but he knows that this is not enough. He needs to pray. And I think that is one of the most important lessons that we need to learn when we think about engaging in missional work. Uh, we, you have heard the last 10, 12 years, we are involved in a lot of church planning in Athens. 15 years ago, I didn't know what church planning was. I have never seen a church being planted in my entire life. I still remember before I went to go to study at Gordon Conwell, I was speaking with the, like one of the senior pastors in, in Athens, and I said to him, do you think it's a good idea perhaps to explore a little bit about church planning? And he gave me that look that I will never forget, which meant, you know, these things happen only in the United States. I mean, we have nothing to do with that. I mean, he didn't say it exactly, but that's what he meant to say. So th that was our experience. And then, you know, uh, we felt compelled and convinced by the scriptures, that church planning is the way. But how exactly do you plan the church? 
okay? I mean, what is the trick? Uh, I mean, we're talking about a birth, and a birth is a miracle. How exactly can you bring that about? Uh, and uh, so, thank God you have city to city that they train your people, and you get some good material there. And, and as I always say, I use this illustration with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You remember that incident? And, and, and let me say this, okay? You, you can find a way to build an altar, okay? Find, let's say you find a good manual to, to choose the right stones, okay? You find the right stones, you find a manual how to put them together, and you do that, and you build a nice altar, and then you need wood, okay? Again, that, somehow you can figure that out, you know, to choose the right proper wood, to cut it the right way and put it on the altar, and then you need animals. In this case, you find some church planters, okay? And <laughs> some young, uh, uh, y- young guys who don't know what they're getting into, so you take them and you say, okay, you will plant the church. You put them out there, and, 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 then, and then you have to deal with your elders, uh, we're Presbyterian. So I remember when, when, when we decided to plant the, I mean, uh, one of the first churches that we planted, because the, the first one, it was like a transplant. We took 30 people from our congregation and went to this place and we started the church. But then we had to decide it, you know, I'll tell you the story later, uh, perhaps, <laughs> not today, <laughs> so, uh, definitely not now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, so we, we chose this place, which is, it, it was the anarchist area in Athens. Uh, no, no known evangelical lived there. No one wanted to move and live in that area. But we felt that this is the sensitive nerve of the city, and this is where the Lord is calling us to, to plant the church. So as I said, you, you build the altar, the wood, the animals, and then you have to deal with the elders because the elders keep asking, what exactly are you going to do? How are they going to do it? And the answer is, I have no idea, which I didn't. But that's, that's the whole point. So you, you put them there. But then there is this crucial moment that you need fire from heaven. You can build the altar. You can put the wood. You can even find the animal. But do you know of any good tricks to bring fire from heaven? No, I don't. So what do you do? You pray. You pray in desperation <laughs> and you say, Lord, now is your turn. And many times, let me tell you this, because we believe in the sovereignty of God, there are many times that God sends fire and there are those times that God says no. And we need to accept those as well. And talking about missions, about church planning, many times we always like to tell the success stories. But there is a lot of pain there as well. There is a lot of darkness there. And you need to trust God's sovereignty. And I always like to say that uh, if we do that for God's glory, we're so happy and glad and relieved that God cares about his glory more than we do. So we do whatever, and then we leave it up to God, and we pray, and we pray. But then, when we pray, is what exactly do we expect to happen? How far can our faith go? And this is, and we'll end with that. And this is, can we have the last slide, please? This is what Paul is doing here. He says, I'm praying and this is the ripple effect, okay? How far can you think of going when you pray and you bring something to the Lord? Did I tell you this, the last point? I need to confess, there is, 
like an epilogue at the end, okay? <laughs> so this is the last point of the three points, and then there is a short epilogue. I'm going to be honest with you. Well, Paul says this. He could have said the first fra- phrase. He's able to do what they ask. He, he could have said that. That's, that's generous. I mean, God can do that. But, I mean, he could have said this, the other thing. He's able to do what they ask or think. That's even more generous. But he says, he could have said something even more. He's able to do all they ask or think. Or, he could have said, he's able to do above all they ask or think. He could have said, he's able to do abundantly above all they ask or think. Or he could have said, he's able to do more abundantly above all they ask or think. But Paul chooses to say, he's able to do infinitely more abundantly above all they ask or think. What does it tell you? I mean, how far can your faith go? The ripple effect. Final point, why should we do that? Why should we engage in missions? In, you know, any kind of definition you may choose. I mean, the simple answer is because three comes after two. I always tell my congregation that the number one exegetical skill you need to have, sometimes you spend years and years studying at seminaries, and the most important exegetical skill you need to know is to know how to count. You know, like basic stuff, two, three, four, or three, you know, backwards and forwards. So why I'm saying that, it's very interesting that Paul, in chapter 3, when he describes his ministry, his mission, he uses the word grace. It's the grace that is given to me. It's the grace that, you know, I have to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So we read that in chapter 3. But in chapter 2, we read, you remember, that it's by God's grace that we have been saved. Remember? And we read verse 1, chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses uh, and sins. And verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved so that you might, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace Uh, For by grace you have been saved, verse 8. So, it's out of grace received that we go into ministering. It's not the other way around. Religion turns things around. So, first you need to do all these things, to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, to do great things for Jesus Christ, to minister, to, to preach, to do all these things, so that then God will be gracious to you. But No, no. The logic of the gospel, the gospel is not the ABC, it's the A to Z of Christian life, of everything, okay? So, because you have received grace, the outgrowth of this grace that you have received is ministry to the others. So, I pray that all of us, wherever God has put us, you here in Birmingham, Alabama, in the south of the United States, us in Athens, Greece, all of you missionaries, wherever you are, that we will be faithful. And as we enjoy God's grace in our life, we'll let this 
joy flow into mission and to ministry for his sake and for his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you because even though we didn't deserve it, you covered us by grace in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have accepted us. We are precious to your sight. And Lord, we pray that out of this acceptance, out of this love, that you will grow in us a desire and a passion to be faithful for your sake. Lord, we thank you because we live in this time and age that this great mystery of your plans has been revealed. And we pray, Lord, that you will make us all ministers of this mystery, wherever we are, wherever we live, for your sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.